I'm stoked to be here with you in church and excited to be kicking off this new series. And uh, we're calling it Long Game. We even got like a little selfie station set up over there. It's kind of fun, a photo booth. But uh, you may be wondering, what are you talking about, Long Game? Well, what is this? Well, I'll give you the definition of what it means. Uh, long Game is a long-term strategy or endeavor. It's one who follows the long-term strategy or is said to play the long game. Uh, it actually is kind of like a British slang term and for a confidence trick or a long con, like where you're, you're, you're not taking like the easy payday, you're kind of got this long-term strategy. Another uh, uh, definition of it could be that um, somebody who's looking for the long-term payoff, maybe like in, in political uh, ways, you know, using this strategy, you're not, you're not going for the easy mark, but you're kind of outsmarting your opponent in the long term. Uh, an example you could kind of think of is, picture this, I mean, you get some poor fool to fall in love with you on Bumble. And as he's in love with you, you tell him, you know, I've just been diagnosed with this terminal disease. I have this awful terminal disease. And you get your partner in crime. They rent some medical equipment. And you get the guy to start paying for your treatments. Then you fake your own death and you ditch off with the cash. Aha, the long game. That's clever, right? That's clever. People have done those sorts of things. But the reason why I got the concept for this series, the premise behind it, is there's this fabulous verse that comes to us in the Bible from the book of Proverbs. And it comes from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 22. And it says this, Do they not go astray who devise evil, but mercy and truth belong to those who devise evil? Good. See, it's kind of got the idea in there that crime doesn't pay, that if you devise for evil, that eventually you're going to get caught, that in the long game, crime doesn't pay. But it, but it tells us to maybe learn a little something from the mob bosses, to learn something from the criminal masterminds, that we could maybe use a little bit more strategy, because oftentimes we find these criminal masterminds, these con men, these people who play the long game, we find them to be maybe the most cunning, the most crafty, the most calculated, that they're patient, they're strategic, they don't take the easy payday, they play out the long game. Everybody say that with me. The long game. They go for the long game. And Jesus tells us that we're supposed to be as cunning as serpents, but as harmless as doves. But I've met a lot of Christians who are bird-brained and snake-fanged, all right? They don't, they don't think about the big picture. They don't think about the strategy. And sometimes they're just vicious. They don't really think about how they are, are going to approach different situations, approach life, maybe even approach people who don't believe the same thing as them. Sometimes we are bird-brained and snake-fanged, but Jesus told us to be as crafty, as clever as snakes, but as harmless as doves. So what are we learning in the long game series? We're learning this. To scheme for good. To scheme for good. That people scheme for evil, but we're learning to scheme for good. To plot. To plan. To conspire. To take our cues from Slipping Jimmy and Jimmy Hoffa. That we're going to learn to play the long game. It's like Pinky and the Brain. What are we going to do in this series? We're going to plot to take over the world. That's what we're going to do. We're going to learn to live for the long game. And if we're going to learn how to be clever, and if we're going to learn how to be crafty, and if we're going to learn how to be cunning, we're going to learn how to be calculated, there's really no better place than to look to the book of, than, than to look to the book of Proverbs. 
Because Proverbs comes from the section of the Bible that's all about wisdom literature. Okay, there's different sections of the Bible. It's not all the same. You know, there's some portions that are narratives. There's some parts that are just like letters. Like, you know, Paul just like sending a letter to one of his bros over, you know, hey, Titus, what's good, man? Here's some good advice. You know, there's different sections of the Bible. But Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's almost like reading little Jewish fortune cookies. Okay, that's what the book of Proverbs is like. They're like these little Jewish fortune cookies. But instead of Confucius say, it's Solomon says, all right? Solomon says, because King Solomon, he wrote this super wise, brilliant guy. And it's like reading his Twitter feed. Because when you're reading Proverbs, it can be kind of odd sometimes. Like the thoughts aren't always interconnected. They're just these short little catchphrases, these little uh, uh, packed, loaded with wisdom. Sometimes they seem weird at first, and you've got to think about them for a little while, and then you catch on. And then you read the next verse. You might be talking about something completely different. But it is wisdom literature. And if we're going to learn to live lives that are more cunning, we're going to learn to live lives that are more crafty, we're going to learn to play the long game, then this is a great place to turn, a great place to look. Now, if you'd look with me in Proverbs chapter 14, there's a great one. It actually gets repeated twice in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I've titled my message today, Dead End. Dead end. See, I've lived in Portland for about a year and a half now, and uh, you know, I was pretty confident about learning the city and kind of navigation. I feel like I've got stronger navigation skills. Usually, that's not exactly my wife's area of expertise. And I remember one time I was in Northeast Portland, which I'm not quite as familiar with, and I was trying to get home. And there I am, and I'm driving east, and I'm like, I know where I'm going, babe. She's like, no, you should use the Waze. You should use the GPS, man. You're going to waste time. You're going to get us lost. I was like, no, man, I've got, the, I've got it mapped out by now. I'm a local. I've got this place figured out. i got it like the back of my hand. And I'm driving. I'm on this main street, and I'm feeling strong, feeling confident. And then all of a sudden, the street gets more narrow. And I'm like, oh, this is odd. This is bizarre. Wait, I thought I was on a main street. All of a sudden, I'm in a neighborhood, and I keep going, just keep blazing onward. It's fine. I'm going to get through to that big thoroughway, that big uh, main street again. It'll be great. We'll be home in no time. She's like, I don't know, babe. This seems kind of shady. This seems sketchy. Should have used ways. And then all of a sudden, what do I see in the neighborhood? I see this bright yellow diamond. And what does it say in big, bold letters? It says, dead And, ooh, you were so confident. You thought you were so right. You thought you knew where you were going, Jesse, but you don't know nothing. And she kind of like rubbed it in my face because usually she's the one who gets lost and she doesn't know which way's north, which way's east. Doesn't know, you know, couldn't couldn't find her way around her hometown sometimes. But, uh, But she rubbed it in my face. She got me bad that time. Well, this text says exactly that. There's a way that feels right, that seems right, that looks right. To a man, but its way is the end of death. That's the way a lot of people look at their life. They go, This feels so good. This feels so right. You gotta be true to you. You gotta do what feels right to you. You gotta you gotta do just what's natural, what's instinctive. You gotta go with your gut. You gotta do what feels right. This feels so me. But I don't know if anybody else here would, you know, mind a show of hands that sometimes your feelings have misled you 
Anybody been in that kind of situation where you felt like it was a good decision, you felt like you were going the right way, but then you found that it was a dead end? Well, that's exactly what the book of Proverbs is telling us today. And our first thought this morning is that God wants long game good for you. And some of the people, they, they heard that point, they were a little confused by it. The idea is in contrast to short game good. Because oftentimes what we want for ourselves, we want immediate good. We want immediate results. We want short game good, short term good. But God, he wants good for you. But the good that he wants for you is long game good, long term good. And this goes against our grain, doesn't it? Because we're the sort of people who upload our photos to Instagram. We live in a day and age where we order our food on Postmates and we get impatient because the guy takes 20 minutes instead of 15 minutes. I mean, we live in, 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 a, in a time where we have same-day delivery on Amazon. We live in a day and age where we're so accustomed to things being there. I mean, we get our checks direct deposit. We get paid direct deposit. We can live stream current events and concerts and classes. We complain about how slow our high-speed internet is. Our LTE isn't fast enough. I mean, we live in a generation that is just at water, but we serve a God who likes to do stuff homemade. And like some of the restaurants around Portland will tell you, Good things take time, all right? Good things take time. We may be an instant people, but we serve an ultimate God. I love what it says. If We're going to be looking at several different little tweets here from Proverbs chapter 14. But it says this, the fear of the Lord, in verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. I read a fascinating article, actually came out this week, released this week, uh, and it was by a man named Tyler Vanderweel, and he's a professor of epimetiology at Harvard University, and the title of the article was, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. That religion may be a miracle drug. See, this text says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, and that it turns you away from the snares of death. Well, I was shocked to find out how literally that may be. Because this article from this epimeniologist, that's hard to pronounce, uh, from Harvard University, went on to talk about how there's, he did a study that lasted over 20 years. And that there's been other studies that have found the exact same findings so that it's not even really contested. That just attending church on a weekly basis may lengthen your life up to 30%. That just going to church on a weekly basis, this is, this is a, a doctor from Harvard, saying that it may lengthen your life up to 30%. And he went on in the study and talked about how attending church on a weekly basis will actually uh, improve your mental health, that it actually has been shown to improve your physical health, your, your, the, the health of your entire body. There's a lot of different explanations. Part of it, they said, about a quarter of the reason for that is just because you're part of a community. You're not socially isolated. But he made a distinction saying it's not just that, though. It's also the message of forgiveness, the message of hope, that it ha gives you lower levels of depression just by coming to church every week, that, uh, that it's been shown that it in, in, uh, decreases the likelihood of suicide, that you're less likely to participate in, uh, in, in maybe different sorts of social activities that have bad effects on your body, like smoking and drinking heavily. But just by attending church on a weekly basis, you can lengthen your life up 
to 30%. Interesting article, fascinating, kind of a, a real life example how the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So good job coming to church, everybody. Can we give everybody a hand just being here at church right now? It's a, it's a good use of your time. Harvard doctors know that it's a good use of your time. It's fantastic. But you need to know that the purpose of Jesus in your life is joy. That his desire for you is to refresh you, not to restrict you. That God is not out to beat you down, but his desire is to build you up. That his purpose for your life isn't to ruin your life, it's to renew your life. That he's not the man trying to get you down with all these rules, that he's not trying to withhold things from you, that he's not trying to keep you back except from anything that's going to end up in the long game being what destroys you. You see, God is life. And the most satisfying life that there is, is a life that's surrendered to him. Everything else out there is going to leave you thirsty. It's going to leave you coming up short. It's going to leave you empty in the long run. And I talk to people and they say, you know what? I'm enjoying my life. I don't got no God in my life. I'm living the crazy wild life. I'm sowing my wild oats. Hey, but here's the thing. You're still on the high. You haven't yet hit the hangover. You haven't hit that part of life where you find yourself thirsty. You see, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is Peter preaching right after Jesus has risen from the dead. If you're, not, if you're new to church, because we try to be a church where outsiders are welcome. Peter was one of Jesus' like, main homeboys. He was like his, his disciple, hung with him his whole life. He betrayed him, but Jesus rises from the dead. He preaches this insane sermon in Acts chapter 3. In verse 19, he says this, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That's forgiveness. Okay, that's forgiveness. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to refreshment. Repentance leads to refreshment. And it's important because in order to be saved, in order to come to Christ, you must repent. Now, repent isn't a very popular word, and it kind of conjures imagery I've told you before of, of just like these really angry guys in the streets, like freaking you out at concerts, like at Moda Center, repent, you know, scaring you, freak shows. But repentance is something that's very biblical. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said this. He said, the idea that God will pardon, that's forgive, a rebel who hasn't given up his rebellion is contrary both to Scripture and and to common sense. Okay, think about that. Think that through. The idea that God would pardon a rebel who hasn't give up, given up his rebellion is contrary both to scripture and to common sense. Some people live with this attitude. They're like, they're like, I know I'm doing all kinds of bad stuff, but I know God will forgive me. That's his job. People have that attitude. But, you know, that's contrary to both the scripture and to common sense. You, you, he will forgive you, but you have to repent. You have to put an end to say, I'm done with my rebellion. At least I don't want to rebel anymore. But here's, here's where the kicker really comes. When you learn what the Greek word for repent means, it's kind of different than what we think. Because we think of it, it's like, all right, God, I'll change my ways. I'll clean up my act if I have to. But that is not what God desires. The word repent in Greek means to change your thinking. 
to change your thinking. It's not simply a change of behavior. It's a change of perspective. Not that you put up with God, but you put your faith in God. Not that you do as he says simply, but that you'd see as he sees, that you'd want what he wants, that you'd think as he thinks. That's repentance. And it's not that our repentance stirs God's kindness. Well, you know the verse, God's kindness stirs us to repentance. It's not like, oh, if if I change my ways, then God will be nice to me. If I change the way I live, the way I think, God will be nice to me. No, no, no. Because God is so kind, because God is so gracious, that should change our thinking. That should change our perspective. See, God actually wants good for you. But it's long game good. It's not always what feels good in the moment, the kind of good that God wants for you. He goes on in this text, I love this. He says, he says and, and he continues his sermon, and in verse 26, this is how he closes it out. He says this, God raised up his servant Jesus, and he sent him to you first to bless you by turning you each away from your wicked ways. The word bless sounds churchy, but back then it wasn't churchy because I wasn't a church yet, all right? The word bless, it actually means to make successful, to make happy. That God comes to bless you, how does he do it? By turning you away from your wicked ways. See, a lot of people want God's blessing, but they're not in a place where they're blessable. And, and, and in the moment, when you get turned from doing what you want, when you get turned from following your feelings, when you get turned from following your heart, when you get turned from your wicked ways, it doesn't always feel good in the moment, does it? I mean, not, not by a long shot. Because in the moment, in the short game, all you see is the inconvenience. But you miss out on the benefit. In the momentary, it only allows you to see the inconvenience, but it blinds you to the benefit. We only see what it costs us. We don't see what it adds to us. We don't see that we're, that, that we, we see, we feel like we're missing out. I mean, when you don't go to that party, when you don't go out drinking, when your friends are all out having the crazy time, or when you're, you're, you're not going to look at that porn, you're not going to sleep with that person, you're not going to, you know, go along with, with whatever situation it might be, you feel like you're missing out. But when you give in, you don't see what you're losing out on. That sin kills your calling. That sin kills opportunities. That sin kills, you may have that pleasure, but you're missing out on your potential. That you're trading, the, you're trading your desires for your destiny. You're trading the instant for the ultimate. You're trading the temporal for the eternal. And what God wants for you is he wants a good that's lasting. He doesn't want a good that's simple. He doesn't want a good that's cheap. He doesn't want a good that's momentary. He wants a good that goes on and on and on. God wants long game good for you. See, the Christian life isn't summed up in the things you can't do. The Christian life is summed up in having faith to see the immeasurable things he's called you to. It's not simply giving things up. It's giving yourself over. It's not just simply stop sinning. It's start soaring. That God wants long game good for you. Next thought is this. That temptation always talks in the present tense. Temptation always talks in the present tense. Look at verse 16, Proverbs 14, 16. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed 
and yet feels secure. He kind of tweets about the same thing a few verses later, verse 29. He says, whoever is patient, patient has great understanding, but the one who's quick-tempered displays folly. See, temptation screams at you in the present. It screams at you in the now. What feels good now? What looks good now? What's easier now? And what do you always hear from somebody? You hear somebody, you're like, what the heck? What were you thinking doing that? What were you doing saying that on that bus with that camera? What were you doing recording the the thing? And you're like, it made sense at the time, but I didn't know. If I would have known this would have happened, I never would have done that. If I would have known this was going to happen, if I knew what I knew now, I never would have done what I did then. See, it's short-term convenience with no thought to long-term consequence. I mean, just think about being back in like mid-school or something. Go back, if I go back in my head in a time machine to when I was in mid-school or when I was in high school, I was so concerned with impressing all these kids. Like, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. I just have to impress them. I got to get them to think that I'm cool. Do you think I give like two craps about what those kids think about me now? Like, I do not care what they think about me at all. I don't even know them anymore. But like, oh, it was the end of the world. I got to impress them. I have to fit in. I have to look good. It's like, those people don't have anything to do with my life now. Why did I care about impressing them? It's because I didn't have the long game perspective. I was playing the short game. But what we got to do is we start a guard, it's got to start living the long game. There was this kid in, uh, in my high school. He was like the coolest kid, right? He was the total ladies' man, got with all the girls. He was athletic. He was so fly. He was so cool, right? He was the one selling the weed at school, the one ditching class. He was just the coolest kid, the rebel. And, and, and everybody wanted to be like him. Everybody wanted to hang around him. Everybody wanted to fit in with him. But you have to imagine my surprise when seven years later, I was pulling through a drive through picking up my burger, <laughs> And that dude was the one handing the burger to me out the window. And and I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. Man, I love that guy. I believe God has a future for that guy if he'd open his eyes to it. But I'm just saying that in the long game, maybe that what felt so important, what felt so cool, what felt like trying to fit in, man, it wasn't so good in the end. It didn't take him very far. I bet you he wished he could go back in time and maybe change the way he lived a little bit, possibly. You see, we think about what feels good. God thinks about what is good. And we need to have that shift in our perspective because that half hour in the sack will feel really good. That half hour in that hotel room, it'll feel really good. But the next half century with HPV won't feel so good. By the way, Portland's number one in coffee, number one for bicycling, number five for human papillomavirus. Not so good, right? Uh, that fi- that's 60 seconds Chewing, uh, chewing out your boss is going to feel really good. Oh, I told him. I told my boss off. I laid it into him. But the next six months, unemployed ain't going to feel so good. It's not going to feel quite as good. Getting wasted is going to feel really good. Having cirrhosis of the liver is going to feel bad. Uh, you know, having the wild weekend on the credit card feels good. Getting a 300 on your FICO score feels bad. <laughs> you know, it's like being a little kid, right? You're there and, and, and you're eating all the Snickers in the mini fridge in the hotel. You're like, yes, I free candy. I found this glorious little mini fridge in the hotel. Yeah, until the bill comes for the hotel, you're like, oh, Maybe, maybe that wasn't such a good idea coming out of your allowance for the next 20 years, 
All right, paying that back. If you always do what feels good now, your life will get worse and worse. If you always do what's easy now, your life is going to get harder and harder. Following your feelings in the present will take you to a future you do not want to be a part of. Taking the path of least resistance may lead you somewhere you do not want to be. Taking the path of least resistance may lead you to a future, to a fate you do not want to go to. Because sin is freaking fun in the moment, but it's got no plan for your future. God has a plan for your future, and we got to start living in the long game. When temptation comes along, see, the key is transitioning from instant to ultimate, from temporal to eternal, from our desires to our destiny. And when Satan comes at you and he's screaming to you about how fun your past was, and he's screaming to you about how good it's going to feel in the present, you got to shut him down saying that God has a future and a hope for you, that he's got a plan for your life. You know, Satan's got a plan for your life too. It's a horrible one. It's a terrible plan for your life. It doesn't lead anywhere good. Sin feels good in the moment, but obedience is better in the long game. I'm a collector, all right? A lot of people collect things. Maybe you collect, like, weird little precious moments dolls because you're just into that. Okay, that's weird. You know, maybe you collect other stuff. Maybe you collect guitars. Maybe you collect uh, experiences. You like to take photos from all the places you've traveled. People collect all kinds of things. You can watch that show Hoarders. People collect the weirdest things. You know what I like to collect? I like to collect studies that go on and end up verifying the very things that Scripture's been saying for thousands of years. That's what I like to collect. I like to collect those things. Like the study from Duke University, California University, the Institute of Psychiatry, and, uh, and, and um, the Institute of Psychiatry from New Zealand that said persistent marijuana use leads to economic problems in midlife and that people were worse off in the long game even than those people who drink often. Ah, fascinating study. Or the Journal of Sex Reachers that, said, that found that people who hook up and shack up and have casual sex, they found greater levels of anxiety, social anxiety, and depression among those students. And the people who did not and abstained from that were better off in the long game. I like the Cornell University that said that couples who had sex before marriage found that they were less satisfied with their sex life and their overall relationship quality in marriage, but that couples who waited to have sex before they were married were better off in the Like the University of Denver study that said couples who lived together before marriage had lower qualities of marriage, and couples who didn't live together were better off in the I like the study from the National Survey of Families and Households that says that people who are unhappy in their marriage but stuck it out were happier five years later than people who divorced and, and, were, and were measured five years later because they were better off in the... See, God has long game good for you. And when God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. When God forbids, it's because he protects. When he commands, it flows from concern. God wants good for you. But the thing is, the now seems like so much fun. Everybody else is having out such a blast out there. They're having such a good time. Well, look what verse 13 says in Proverbs 14. It says this, even in laughter, the heart may ache. In the end... Of joy 
may be grief. You can be the life of the party and be dead on the inside. You can. Anybody who's hung around that crowd long enough knows that, that you can be the life of the party but be dead on the inside. And the the whole mentality of my generation, you know, live fast, die young, that sounds really cool. Yeah, live fast, die young. We're just going to be crazy. Who cares? No tomorrow, baby. That sounds really cool until it's your friend being lowered into the ground and, and he got shot in front of you at a party or your friend OD'd or got in that crazy drunk driving accident. It all sounds really cool. Yeah, live fast, die young until the reality hits and you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't as cool as I thought. See, we've got to trade cheap thrills for true joy. Cheap, thr- cheap, cheap thrills for true joy. And the answer isn't to reject pleasure. The answer is to replace those pleasures. That I'd be so busy with the pleasures of God, I ain't got time for the pleasures of sin. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this. He said, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not to be too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We've got to expand our horizons, think a little bit bigger, think a little bit broader, think about the big picture, and crave those deeper joys, those richer joys. The third point today is that selfish nations self-destruct. I just wanted to, to take a moment. I thought this would be interesting for everyone, especially because we're a church. Who, we we want to engage skeptics. We want to answer questions that people are actually asking. We want to, you know, actually... Uh, not not misrep- misrepresent people or caricature people, but actually think through the issues. But it says this in Proverbs 14.31, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Now, I've found that most secular people living in Portland agree with that verse. Like, like, they like that idea, except for the maker part. They don't like that. But they'd agree, yeah, like, don't oppress the poor. Poor people matter. I've found that, that most atheistic people really are passionate about humanitarian causes. I, I talk about this often. I, I found that, that most people you know who don't know Jesus, they really care about these issues. They think it's really a big deal. But where this idea that you have a responsibility towards the poor, where did it come from? That, that's what I'm interested in. Um, you know, where, where did the idea of, of uh, every individual having rights, where did that come from? I mean, who decided that poor people should have the same rights as rich people? Well, I'll tell you what, it, it didn't come from evolution. Because evolution is all about the strong killing the weak. The, the more strategic, the more crafty, the more clever, surviving, outliving all the other ones as they die off. I mean, it didn't come from the Greeks, Because the Greeks, they had democracy, but it was only for the elite. It was only for the noble. Everybody else was dispensable. Everybody else was property. Uh, It didn't come from the East. I mean, because a lot of times people say, no, 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 they care about the poor. They care care about it a great deal in the East. It did not come from Eastern thought. 
The rights of the individual has no place within the Eastern worldview because the Eastern worldview says that my individuality does not even exist, but I'm just going to be absorbed into, into, the, into the greater uh, existence and that my individuality is really just an illusion. See, most secular people care about humanitarian causes. They care about individual rights. They believe in the freedom of the individual. That's, that's kind of like everybody's rallying cry that everyone should be able to do whatever they want regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of gender, that the individual has certain inalienable rights, the cry for freedom. But the thing is, most atheists I know have not thought through the implications of their worldview. And what our culture is doing as we try to push to become more secular and we try to ignore God is we're sawing off the branch that we're standing on. We're sawing off the branch that we're standing on. And this isn't just me saying it, some Bible thumper up here. Okay, this is the leading intellectuals of our day are realizing this. Like Jürgen Habermas, he's an atheist. He's a philosopher from Germany. But I'd like you to see this quote. We'll put it on the screen for you. He said this, Christianity and nothing else is the foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter. See, we think that we can dispose of Christianity as a society and as a nation and as civilization, but we want to hold on to the values that it brought us. But here's the thing. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's exactly what Frederick Nietzsche realized a long time ago in his book, Twilight of the Idols. And he said this, when one gives up the Christian belief, one thereby deprives itself of the right to Christian morality. Of the latter, it's absolutely, it's not self-evident. Christian morality is not self-evident. Christianity is a system and a constantly thought out and complete view of things. If one breaks out of the fundamental idea, the belief in a God, one by thereby breaks the whole thing into pieces. And that's why Nietzsche is saying, I want to be consistent. He said, let's dispose of all this, this weak, uh, mamby-pamby humanitarian stuff. Let's quit about caring about the poor. Let's quit about caring about the, the, the rights of people. And he wanted to believe in the Superman, this warrior ethic. And want to know what Nietzsche paved the way for? Even though, even though Hitler was all messed up, he was into all kinds of weird occult stuff. Want to know what, want to know what he paved the way for? Nietzsche's thinking paved the way for Nazi Germany. To go back to the uberman, the superman, to say, no more of this humanitarian stuff, caring about the poor. You see, these things come from Christianity. And secular society cannot have it both ways. To think you can have, you can reject Christianity but hold on to Christian values is a joke. Because guess what? It may work for now, but it won't hold up in the long game. And generations will become more and more brutal. They'll become more and more selfish. They'll become more and more savage. It makes sense to us now because we're still living in a civilization soaked with Christian values, but it won't work in the long game. I'll give you one more thing. I think this is fascinating. I think it's interesting and I think it's compelling to share this with people. I had a really, I was like at Playdate PDX with my little boy and I had like the dopest conversation ever with this guy just asking him like, hey, do you believe in human rights? He's like, yeah. I was like, why? He's like, I have no idea. <laughs> he, said, he said, I don't know why I believe it. I don't know why everybody has rights. 
he hadn't thought it through. Alexis de Tocqueville said this. He was a, he was a French political thinker. He said this. Individual freedom can become cancerous and threaten freedom itself. And in a different place, he wrote this. It was in his book, uh, Democracy in America. He wrote, liberty cannot be established without morality. And morality cannot be established without faith. America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. See, what's our culture just crying? It's like, my freedom, nobody has the right to tell me how to live my life. I should live my life however I want, however I please. But what Alexis de Tocqueville hundreds of years ago recognized is that he he recognized that if people became more and more self-absorbed in their freedom, that slowly people would be less devoted to society, less devoted to community, less devoted to the public good, and that because of that, our obsession with freedom would force the government to become stricter and stricter and larger and larger and more of a hierarchy and more of a bureaucracy, and that eventually our obsession with freedom would lead us to the loss of freedom. See, doing whatever you want feels good in the moment, but doing what's actually good is what's good in the long game. Long game. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. That's all good advice, right? It's good advice. Live for the long game. Live with a big picture in mind. Don't just be easy. Have some self-discipline. That's, that's good advice. But we don't come to church to hear good advice. We come to church to hear good news. We come to church to hear good news. And that's why we got one final point. It's in every message that I ever preach. It's that he walked your dead end to make a way. He walked your dead end to make a way. There's a way that seems right to a man, and its way is the end of death. And guess what? I've taken it, and you've taken it. We've all taken that wrong turn. We've all gotten off course. We've all gone that down that dead end road. Every single one of us is sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And you know what? Nobody gets off death row for good behavior. You can't get religious and earn your way. Once, you, once you've committed a sin that, 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 that's end is death, once you've committed that crime, nobody gets off death row for good behavior. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But you know what? John 14, 6 said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. See, there's only one man who really lived for the long game. There's only one man who always did what was good rather than what f- feels good. There's only one man who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's only one man who always lived, always obeyed, and he obeyed in the moments when it cost him something, when it wasn't going to lead to a good conclusion for him, when it wasn't going to lead to a happy ending, when it was going to lead to death. And Jesus Christ, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died to give us the life that only he could give. And that's the good news of the gospel. That there's hope for filthy hands. There's hope for people who don't live for the long game. There's hope for people who've taken the short road, who've taken the low road, who've failed. There's hope for sinners like me and like you. And if you'd repent, if you'd change your thinking, if you'd believe God that he actually wants good for you, if you'd trust him with your life, if you'd turn to him, your sins would be erased, your past would be pardoned, you'd have the hope of heaven when you die, you'd have eternal life then and abundant life now. And I want to offer you that offer this morning. Father, I thank you. 
that you do have our long game good in mind, Jesus. That you love us. That you're for us. You're not against us. That you're not looking to get us down. You're looking to pick us up. Jesus, I pray that people would see that. That they'd see that you want long game good for us so bad that you wouldn't stop and not even death itself to give it to us. That's the message of the cross. Lord, I pray that people would believe that. They'd turn their eyes to Jesus. They'd find salvation. If that's you this morning, if you want to put your hope in Jesus, if if you feel like you've taken the short game so many times and it's not ending well for you, and, and you want a clean start, you want a clean break from your past, you want forgiveness, you want hope, you want healing, you want a future, that's what Jesus, he offers to you because God's greatest glory is your greatest good. And if you turn to him right now, he would save you. He'd rescue you. The Bible says you don't got to, you know, get off death row with your good behavior. All you got to do is look to the one who paid your death sentence for you. That's all you got to do. And whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that's you, would you pray this out loud? Just pray this out loud from your heart. Say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. And that's a dead end. But I believe in Jesus that he died for my sins, that he's risen from the dead. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Be my savior and be my Lord. Amen, amen. Fantastic, fantastic. We're gonna stand and sing right now. If you prayed that prayer, if you made that decision, we'd love to rally around you. The thing is, it's so easy to live for the short game. We need other people who are like-minded. We need people to rally around around us. We need people to march alongside of us. And we'd love to do that with you. We'd love to give you a Bible. So if you prayed that prayer, we'd love to talk with you. But uh, let's live for the long game and let's make it our mission to spread that message. You know, let's let's bring people with us. You know, let's be an outward-minded church. And uh, I think I think... We'll see some exciting things happen, but let's sing right now.